You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Next up on Destination Freedom. I passed Little Rock Central High School every day going to the black high school. And in my early days, I wanted to be a doctor. And I knew what was in that school. And I knew... At Dunbar, at my black junior, senior high school, that in the laboratory, uh, the science lab, that 10 of us would be standing around this poor little frog to dissect, where at Central, there would be two kids to a frog. So it was about having the same opportunities. Welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast, a copyrighted program of No Credits Production, LLC. I'm producer-director, Donnie Betts. The Little Rock Nine. On September 25, 1957, the common goal for the nine students entering Central High School was to receive the same educational opportunities afforded white people. The majority of the country only know the name Little Rock Nine, not Ernest Green, Elizabeth Eckford, Jefferson Thomas, Dr. Terrence Roberts, Coletta Walls Lanier, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, Gloria Ray Callmark, Thelma Mothershed Ware, and Melba Patello Beals. However, these brave nine and their families endured the unrelenting rage of the majority of white people in Little Rock, Arkansas to break down the segregated wall of Central High School. Next, the Little Rock Nine on Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me and before I'd be. I'd be buried in my grave And there'd be no more chains holding me The school board of Little Rock, Arkansas announced today that 17 Negro children have been chosen to be integrated into the all-white high school. This is the result of the Supreme Court. Where is that letter? Brown versus Board of Education. L.C., I can't find the letter about... Daisy Bates huddled on the floor of her living room covered in shattered glass. Carefully, she removed the soiled paper tied around the rock that had just smashed her window and trembling read the hand-scrawled note. Stone this time, dynamite Stone next this time, time. Dynamite next time. That's how some folks expressed themselves when they realized that one of the anchors of segregation, separate public schools for black children and white children, was about to end. 
1954, in a landmark case, the Supreme Court had ruled that black children, or Negro back then, were to begin attending school with white children. And that's when life in Little Rock began to heat up. Virgil Blossom, the superintendent of the Little Rock School Board, had devised a plan of gradual integration. We're gonna do this in three phases. We won't start for two years so we can get ready for it. Then only at the high school level. We need more time. There is no good time to integrate with Negras. Now, now, times are changing. This was inevitable. We are not ready. The courts can't force us. Black citizens favoring integration thought things were moving too slowly, while some blacks were against any plan at all. We already have a school. They need to repair it and then give us the same money and the same programs those white schools have, and my baby will do just fine. She don't need to be over there with folks who don't want her around. Amen to that. But as September 1957 came closer, fear began its dance. The black community suddenly found itself under new threats. Staunch segregationists began to organize. The state's governor, Orville Faubus, was to become the poster child for business-as-usual school segregation in the South. I took a poll and 85% of Arkansans oppose integration. In his mid-40s, Faubus was considered a moderate. Now, campaigning for a second term, he knew he needed the segregationist vote to keep his job. 85%! Now, I cannot be party to any attempt to force acceptance of a change to which the people are so overwhelmingly opposed. Daisy, hey, Daisy, did you hear? <laughs> no coons coming to Central High. Ah, but they were coming. Three boys and six girls. They would soon be known throughout the world as the Little Rock Nine. Daisy Bates headed the Arkansas State NAACP. That's the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Mrs. Bates and her husband would become the anchor for the nine students and their parents. I'll let the students introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Carlotta Walls. I'll be a sophomore at Central. Carlotta Walls was the youngest, just 14. And um, I swim and play baseball, and I'm very much inspired by Mrs. Rosa Parks. My name is Gloria Ray. I'm 15. Gloria was an above-average student who wanted to study science. And I just want to thank my parents for supporting me in this. My daddy hasn't been well, so I didn't tell him I signed up for Central, and he found out about it on TV. Elizabeth Eckford, I'm 15. The eldest of six, Elizabeth had insisted that her parents let her sign up. And I'd just like to thank Mr. Thurgood Marshall, Mr. Wiley Branton, and Mr. James Lawson for coming here to help us get ready. Jefferson Thomas, sophomore, and I feel Central High's education program would be better for me than the Negro high schools to prepare me for college. I plan to major in electronics. Jefferson was also on the track team at the all-black school. Now he would have to give that up. The black students would not be allowed to participate in any extracurricular activities. My name is Thelma Mothershed. I'm 16 and I'll be a junior. I plan to become a teacher. Thelma weighed less than 100 pounds and had a heart condition, but she also had near-perfect attendance throughout her school career. Hi, I'm Terrence Roberts, 15, and I'll also be a junior. Terrence was the eldest of seven, and he had a quick sense of humor. 
Ernest Green, 17, and I'll be the only senior at Central. I played sax in the school band. Don't know if they're ready for another Charlie Parker at Central. <laughs> I just want to say that I feel like the Montgomery bus boys caused signals that change is taking place in the South, and I want to be part of it. So going to Central will give me a wider set of options. I'm Melba Patillo. I'm 15, a junior. Melba had studied ballet, voice, and piano and seemed destined for the stage. And I must say, I'm not going to Central because of any overwhelming desire to integrate. It's more about access. Minnie Jean Brown, 16, junior. Hey, our parents pay taxes to support these white schools, so we have every right to go Central. Minnie Jean was a good athlete and had a beautiful singing voice. Melba and Minnie Jean were best friends and they were both currently in love with that new pop idol, Johnny Mapp. You love me It's not for me to say You'll always care The students weren't expecting any love at Central. They were being prepped by both the school officials and the NAACP. Now, they're always trying to blur the lines between who's the victim and who's the perpetrator. So if there's a situation and you want to help your buddy, you have to ask yourself, will that make the situation worse? Above all, the one thing you absolutely cannot do is retaliate. You mean, if somebody hits me, I'm supposed to just stand there? It can't be personal, Minnie Jean. This is the biggest test of the Brown versus Berta education case. If they do something, we still have a leg to stand on. But if we act like we can't handle integration, then all this work and struggle goes down the drain. You can handle a couple of spitballs, can't you, girl? I mean, they're not going to be beating up on us. Slavery days are over. Labor Day, Monday, September 2nd, 1957. That evening, everyone tuned in to hear Governor Faubus' welcoming speech. And I have received evidence of threats of disruption. And therefore, I have ordered the state's militia to surround Central High tomorrow to maintain order and to protect the lives and property of citizens. Our blood will run in the streets if Negro pupils should attempt to enter Central High School. Blood will run. He predicted that blood was the battle cry President Dwight D. Eisenhower did not want to hear. He had hoped that the Brown versus Board of Education decision on school desegregation would be enacted calmly. Now, Faubus had set in motion a battle that pitted the authority of the federal government against the authority of a state government. The next 23 days would change America. I wish I was in the land of cotton, yes. Old times there are not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. September 3rd, 1957, day one. Dawn came up on Central High School with the Arkansas National Guardsmen wrapped around it and... And the school board has asked that no Negro student attempt to attend Central High or any white school until this legal dilemma is legally resolved. But the court ordered Governor Faubus to begin integration immediately. 
that evening. Harvey, it's Daisy. Uh, we, are, we want all of the children to meet us at 12th and Park Avenue tomorrow morning at 8.30. This way the children can go in as one group. But who's going to protect them? Oh, several ministers have agreed to walk with us, and the local police are supposed to meet us at the park. That's the best we could work out under the circumstance. Okay. Gloria will be there. Thank you. Hello, Terrence. This is Mrs. Bates. Listen carefully. Tomorrow morning, I want you to... But one of the students didn't have a phone. And with all the last-minute plans and no sleep, Mrs. Bates forgot to send a message to the home of Elizabeth Eckford. This was 1957 before email and text messaging. Uh, they did have alarm clocks. Day 2, Wednesday, September 4th. We are here live in Little Rock, where everyone is wondering, will the Negro children dare to show up to school today? The Arkansas National Guard is still surrounding... Elizabeth, baby, please turn that off. Calm down, Bertie. We need to know what's going on over there. Well, I just don't think it's right that we can't go with her. Who else is going to protect her? Blood will run in the streets? Well, I've already seen that. When I was a little girl, I saw a white mob drag a Negro man through the streets of this town. I heard the screams, I smelled the burning flesh, I heard the crackling fire. Those are some angry white folks outside that school. Now, Mother, don't worry. I'll be with the other students, and the National Guard is there to protect us. So Elizabeth, just 15, took a bus that led her off a block away from Central High. Wearing the new dress she and her mother had made for this special first day, Elizabeth headed for the school's main entrance. Between her and the Arkansas National Guard was one very long block. Elizabeth looked around for Thelma or Ernest, anyone from the group, but all she saw were white faces screaming at her, scowling at her. Elizabeth was glad her sunglasses covered the fear in her eyes. A block. A block to get to the guards, then I'll be safe. Get her before she gets inside, black bastard bitch. She reached the imposing National Guard and tried to slip between them. Um, excuse me, sir? She suddenly found a sharp bayonet pointed at her face. She tried another guard, the same thing. Get up! Nigger, go back to Africa, you coon! Elizabeth spotted a bus stop at the end of the school block. Monkey, get your black ass back to Africa. Keeping her head up, Elizabeth forced one foot in front of the other. Oh! Moving away from the National Guard toward the bench. Slobbery spit landed on her new dress. Ain't no nigger bitch gonna go to school with my kids. A foot came out to trip her. The bench! The bench! Elizabeth slid down on the bench, trembling. But now, there was no barrier between the National Guard and the white citizens. Drag her over to the tree! Then, a man behind her put a firm hand on her shoulder. Elizabeth jumped. This is it. They're going to grab me and lynch me, and I'm too small to fight back. The man came around the bench. Benjamin Fine, reporter with the New York Times. And your name is? Oh, um, Elizabeth Eckford. To her surprise, he put his hand under her chin and lifted her head. Don't let them see you cry, Miss Eckford. Fine, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from New York, 
put his arm around Elizabeth to protect her from the pressing crowd. Well, look at that Jew and the nigger lover. Get a rope and drag her over to that tree. Leave this child alone. Hang your heads in shame. We need to get you out of here. I'm Grace Lorch. My husband teaches at Smith, the black college. There's a drugstore around the next corner. Maybe we can call your They got Elizabeth away from the mob and safely to her mother's place of employment. Moments later, the other eight students arrived. Four ministers had volunteered to escort them, but that didn't calm the mob or convince the National Guard. The students were denied entry to Central High. From Little Rock to Washington, D.C., folks didn't get much sleep the next couple of weeks. Eisenhower was pressured by both the NAACP and Governor Faubus to take action, but he resisted. No Negro was, little, was safe in Little Rock. Women were pulled from their cars in broad daylight and beaten. Bricks were hurled into black businesses. Folks kept their shades drawn and took turns standing guard all night with a loaded rifle on their lap. Day 21. The morning of Monday, September 23rd, the students, all nine of them this time, met at Daisy Bates' home. Carlotta and Ernest paced. Minnie Jean's mother prayed silently. Then... Mrs. Bates, Eugene Smith here, down from the station. Okay, we're going to try to work this out. The crowd is out front, but we think we can get the students in on the side entrance. I suggest we, you make a, a roundabout route to the school to throw off any possible attackers. Look for one of our cars near the school. Four noted black journalists from out of town were also at the Bates' home that morning. The local police and the protesters had kept the reporters from getting access to the Central High scene. Now, they had one chance to get coverage of the children entering Central. Taking the shortest route, they arrived at Central Minutes ahead of the nine. The crowd of about a thousand swung their attention to the reporters thinking they were the parents bringing the Negro students. The reporters were chased, hit with bricks, held to the ground, and kicked. Look, over there! No, they got The mob spoke to unreporters. Oh, no, no, no. children the moment they needed to slip into Central High's side door. Inside, the nine got their first taste of segregated integration. Each was sent in a different direction, dropped into a sea of more than 2,000 white students. They caught a little hell. Well, I'm not sitting in a class with a coon. Who's going with me? And a little hell. we're in chapter four, and there's going to be a test on Friday. I'll let you see my notes, okay? Excuse me, Ms. Grimsby. Uh, that, they want that new nigger Thelma down in the principal's office right now. It wasn't even noon, and they had all been summoned to the principal's office. In an adjoining room... Our officers have got to hold that line. Jean, did you look out there? Those women are starting to tear down the barricades with their bare hands. Some of the menfolk went home and got their rifles. They want us to give them one of the nick, the colored students, and they'll let the rest go. And which one of you wants to make that decision? We're sticking with the backup plan. Y'all in? All right. Oh, okay, listen up, kids. Now, for your own safety, we have got to get you out of here. I've got two unmarked cars downstairs by the basement, by the delivery entrance. 
Get as close as you can down to the floor. Cover your heads. And when we come out, we're not stopping for anybody. Dear President Eisenhower, immediate need for federal troops is urgent. Mob is armed and engaging in acts of violence. Situation is out of control. I'm pleading for you to provide the necessary federal troops within several hours. Woodrow Wilson Mann, Mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas. Day 22, finally, President Eisenhower took action. We interrupt this program. The 101st Airborne Division is swooping into Little Rock, Arkansas at this very moment. Been the One young of a white reporter acted like he was headed to Central High. Wow, they're here. Mrs. Bates, aren't you excited? Excited, yes, but not happy. Why not? Because it's taking 11,500 soldiers to assure non-Negro children their constitutional right in this democratic society. Day 23, Wednesday, September 25th. Reporters crowded into Mrs. Bates' living room, capturing the youngster's nervous excitement. Jefferson Thomas stood watch at the window. They're here! Me, the army's, wow, here! Jeeps quickly sealed off the block. Dozens of paratroopers lined the street. Ooh-wee, I got goose pimples. For the first time in my life, I, I feel like an American citizen. Ms. Bates, it's Utent uh, Unit Commander Bailey, ma'am. Yeah, we're ready for the children. We'll return them to your home at 1530. Uh, just a minute, officer. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, you've said that a little child shall lead them. Mm -hmm. But this is our mm -hmm. flock. We put them in your hands. Mm -hmm. Flood the hearts and minds of those who would do harm to our children with love. Yes, love. And return these precious gifts to this circle. Amen. Amen. Stay back. Stay back or you will be dispersed. Soldier, you find that. Nigga lovers. You find for them. Yes, sir. Someone had a doll made like a soldier and they set it on fire. Sir, we've got it under control. Racists and communists. How dare you? The Little Rock Nine arrived at Central High School sandwiched between machine gun mounts and armed paratroopers. Get your black asses back to Africa. I have never been to Africa. Why don't they tell me to go back to Texas? That's where I'm from. <laughs> Thelma, don't make me laugh now. Then they were out of the jeeps and lined up before the huge, imposing building. An eerie silence filled the space for a moment. Forward, march! Now, three weeks late for class, they were back inside. This time, each had a military bodyguard to get them safely through the halls. And then she would put the seating chart on her head like this. <laughs> And we would be falling out of our chairs. Oh, thank goodness you retired last year. Thanks for coming to sit with us. Oh, we wanted to. A lot of our friends are afraid to talk to you because they're afraid of, um... Afraid of? No! No, they're not. Well, well, um, some of the kids who don't want you here, well, they've been threatening us. So, you know... We understand. We... Thank you. So before the students could get a full grip on their new life, the federal troops withdrew leaving the Arkansas National Guard in charge again. Now, the segregationist, who had been skipping school, began to return with a plan. We're gonna make life as miserable and as dangerous as possible for those nine nigga kids. These violent youngsters were a minority, but they took control of the school. 
and the Arkansas Guard, unlike the 101st, would look the other way as abuses mounted. Good morning. Ah! Enjoy your day. Don't respond. Don't respond. The nine were delivered to Daisy Bates' home at the end of each day. Here, before facing reporters, worried parents, and homework, they had a short time to unwind and talk freely about the daily situation. They spit on me so much my dress stays wet. The eggs, the let eggs wrapped in through them on us this morning. Yeah, saying, how about some breakfast, sounding all friendly. And I had to carry that stinking smell for the rest of the day. That was the easy part. Melba and I were leaving our second period class. Some boys cornered us and left, roughed us up. And they are masters of timing because they know that the school will only acknowledge an incident if a teacher has witnessed it. They had steel tips put on their shoes, and they were kicking us hard every chance they get. Getting to and from the gym class is the worst. Today they broke a bottle on the steps, then pushed me into the broken glass. Whenever Jefferson Thomas heard... Operation 15! He knew punches were coming in his direction. Once he was hit behind his head so hard that it knocked him unconscious but he headed right back into the war zone the next day. If I stay out today, it'll just be worse tomorrow. And it was, because sometimes the psychological kick was harder to take than the physical one. Yesterday, a boy brought a rope to school, made a hangman's noose with it, and actually tried to lasso me in the hall. Last night, he called my parents' house and said if I came back to school today, I would be lynched. Some guys in my homeroom grabbed me and made me go over to the window. An event get a lot across from the school. They are burning a black effigy. They came up real close to me and said, You see that? Tomorrow it's gonna be you. And in the midst of all this, the nine students were expected to concentrate on their schoolwork. Melba wrote in her journal, I don't know how much longer I can do this integration thing. I wanna run away now. I really need a happy day. You know what? If we just keep coming back and doing the work, we will drive our antagonists crazy. <laughs> Most white students saw things, but remained silent witnesses. By Thanksgiving, the nine weren't fighting for integration. They were fighting to save their own spirits. How do you stop yourself from retaliating when someone has just poured a bowl of hot soup over you? Just before Christmas, Minnie Jean was once again threatened by a group of boys in the cafeteria. This time, before you could say desegregation, she had dumped a bowl of chili over the head of one of her tormentors. Maybe reinstated after a six-day suspension with the agreement that she will not retaliate to any harassment but will leave the matter to school authorities. Oh, Minnie Jean! I didn't expect them to like me, but I didn't expect them to hate me either. I keep thinking there must be something really important here for us to go through all this. So I'll be back, scared or not. Cause ain't let me buddy turn me around. Turn me around, turn me Two weeks around later, as Minnie Jean was about to get into her mother's car after school, she was kicked from behind so hard that she could not sit for several days without pain. The school refused to prosecute the perpetrator. Then in February, a girl followed Minnie Jean through the building, kicking her on the back of the legs. You nigger bitch, white trash. That did it. Minnie Jean was expelled and was soon packing for a high school in New York City. Nigga, nigga, in the spring, as graduation neared, the torment escalated. 
Now the segregationist goal was to get the remaining eight expelled so there would be no Negroes coming back next year. But on May 23, 1958, the Arkansas Gazette ran this headline. Central High School Negro passes. One on honor roll. Principal confirms. Green will graduate. Hail to the old gold. Hail to the black. A week later, with federal guards brought back in to keep the peace, Ernest G. Green became the first black graduate from Little Rock Central High School. Now the NAACP was keeping score. Ernest, Ernest, out the door. One up, seven to go. One up, seven to go. One up, seven to go. But Green's graduation is just half the story. The summer of 58 was no vacation, but was spent in courts. Governor Faubus and the segregationists got a law passed that allowed him to stop integration by closing all of the public high schools in Little Rock. 1958, for both blacks and whites, came to be known as the lost year. The nine split apart for the first time. Little Thelma transferred to a school in Missouri, Melba and Terrence to California. Elizabeth remained in Little Rock and took correspondence courses. I'm definitely graduated from Central High. I don't care what they say. Gloria, how are you going to do that? My family sent me to Kansas for my last year. <laughs> and the school I be attending is called Central High. <laughs> August 1959, the second year. Carlotta Walls and Jefferson Thomas were now the seniors and the only two members of the original nine at Central High. How's it going? A little more quiet. I think some of the other seniors want a better environment than before. Some of them are actually trying to include me in their conversations. Well, I am my physics teacher's worst nightmare. <laughs> How? He keeps giving me the broken lab equipment to do lab tests. So you can't figure out how, even with broken equipment, I keep coming up with all the right answers. He doesn't know someone is letting me use the lab after hours. But the campaign to intimidate the black students into quitting had not ceased. In February, Carlotta Wall's home was bombed while she and family members were sleeping. Miss Walls, aren't you afraid to go back to Central High now? I have no intention of quitting. I'm going to graduate or die trying. May 1960. Three years after it all began, the last two members of the original Little Rock Nine graduated from Central High School. Then, 30 years after first entering the school, the Little Rock Nine returned as a group for the first time. They were met by a black female mayor and by the governor, Bill Clinton. Then in 1999, the United States Congress bestowed on the Little Rock Nine the highest honor a civilian can receive, the Congressional Gold Medal. When the Nine received their medals, one person was missing, Daisy Bates. Her funeral had been held in Arkansas earlier that same day. I'll let the students introduce themselves. Carlotta Walls Lanier. I graduated from college in Colorado, and now I'm my own real estate brokerage in Denver. Oh, and I head our Little Rock Nine Foundation. Gloria Ray Carmark. I moved to Sweden where I worked as a system analyst in computer science and robotics. I published a computer magazine, then I became a patent attorney. I now live in the Netherlands. Elizabeth Eckford. After the lost year, I qualified to graduate from Central. I got my bachelor's in history and joined the Army, where I worked as a journalist. In 1974, I returned to Little Rock where I am a probation officer. Jefferson Thomas. I earned a degree in business administration. 
And after serving in Vietnam, I joined the U.S. Department of Defense as an accountant. I retired and live in Columbus, Ohio. Family Mothershed where? I obtained my master's degree and taught home economics for 28 years in East St. Louis, Illinois. I also taught survival skills to homeless and abused women. In 1994, I retired and returned to Little Rock. Terrence Roberts. I completed high school in Los Angeles. I'm now a psychologist in private practice and also teach at a university. Melba Patillo Beals. Meeting the journalist during our venture inspired me to become one. I've been a reporter for both PBS and NBC television in San Francisco, where I still reside. I used the journals I kept in high school to write a memoir titled Warriors Don't Cry. Minnie Brown Tricky. After completing high school and college, I moved to Canada, became a social worker and activist, and raised six children. I re returned and served in President Clinton's administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Department of the Interior. I'm back in Little Rock, where one of my daughters is a National Park Ranger, and her job includes conducting tours of historical Central High School. Ernest Green. I completed college and did civil rights work around desegregating the construction trade. I served under President Jimmy Carter as the Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Affairs. Currently, I live in Washington, D.C., where I'm a manager in a global finance and investment banking. 1957-2007. It has been 50 years since the Little Rock Nine stepped onto the stage of America's conscience. This is their story, shared today so that every student, regardless of race or age, may understand and honor their legacy. Stand up. Stand up. We shall not be moved except by a child with no socks and shoes. If you've got more to give, then you've got to prove. Put your hands up and I'll copy you. Stand up. Stand up. We shall not be moved except by a woman dying from a loss of food. If you've got more to give, then you've got to prove. Put your hands up and I'll copy you. We still don't understand thunder and lightning flashback to when we didn't fund the dam. Didn't fund the dam levy? No wonder, man. Now a whole damn city's torn asunder, man. Underwater, but we still don't understand. We've seen hurricane spills overrun the land through gaps you couldn't fill with a hundred tons of sand. No, we still don't understand. We've seen planes in the windows of buildings crumbled in. We've seen flames sending chills through London, and we've sent planes to kill them. Them, and some of them are children, but still be crumbled in the building. Underfunded, but we still don't understand. Under God, but we kill like the son of Sam. But if you feel like I feel about the son of man, we will overcome. So stand up. stand up. We shall not be moved except by a child with no socks and shoes. If you've got more to give, then you've got to prove. Put your hands up. Stay tuned for an interview with Carletta Walls Lanier, one of the original Little Rock Nine. And now, the thoughts from Carlotta Walls Lanier. I'm Carlotta Walls Lanier, and uh, 50 years ago, I found myself in front of uh, television cameras and answering to reporters and so forth due to the fact that I uh, was one that later became known as the Little Rock Nine. Um, and the reason it's the Little Rock Nine is our 
effort to desegregate Little Rock Central High School. And out of 147 students who had the opportunity uh, to, well, who lived in the area, um, I think only 117 signed up on that first day, it turned out to be nine of us that uh, were faced with the Arkansas National Guard that was there to keep us out under the orders of Governor Arbofarbus and a mob across the street that did not want our attendance there at Little Rock Central High School. Going back some 50 years, what was really your mindset of why you wanted to be one of those students that signed up? Um, as a 12-year-old, uh, in my classroom, uh, we, we took the weekly reader. And that weekly reader uh, had an article on Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision. And it was discussed in, in my uh, uh, classroom. And I knew I had a right to go there based on this decision. And all these things, I mean, I grew up in the South. And in the South, during the 50s, a black person who had to sit on the back of the bus, could not use the public library, could not swim in the public swimming pool, only drink from the colored fountain side next to the white fountain, could only use the um, uh, colored public facilities, all due to the color of my skin. And my parents explained to me that Yes, this is the case now, but things are going to change. There will be a lot of progress in this country. And you must be prepared to be able to accept all this progress and be a part of progress if any way possible. So hearing that at home, being reinforced with that in my elementary school and uh, at my church, White Memorial Methodist Church, and in my community, whether it was the neighborhood, sororities, fraternities, or what have you, they all emphasize education. So it was about having the same opportunities that was due me as a citizen of, of Little Rock, Arkansas. My father was a taxpayer, had served in World War II, and not only that, the Little Rock School Board had put a plan in place to desegregate the schools. They said that they would abide by the Supreme Court decision. And they went about putting a plan in place. I'm sure that there was dissension on that school board. But in the long run, the superintendent led them through a plan. I had a right to be there. And I always exercise my rights as much as I possibly can. And also knowing that I was to get the best education available was one of the reasons I wanted to be there. Can you give us just a, a you say, a atypical day? in Central High School once you entered that school? A typical day, once the 101st Airborne were our protectors and um, guards, they picked us up uh, at one location, which was at Daisy Bates and Elsie Bates' home. We had to get up earlier to go to that spot so that we could get to school on time, but even with the schedule set by the military, we arrived at Central earlier than school started. After a week or so, we found a place in the school 
that we could meet prior to going to our classes when school would start. And that was chapel service. And not all nine of us did that. We felt that that was a safe haven because these are supposed to be Christian people, and they were Christian people. So we that amount of 15 minutes from getting to school, going to your locker, picking up your lo- you, you, whatever might be in your locker, although that process changed during the course of the year, and then going to the lower level where this, this service was held, we would do that. And then when the bell would ring, everyone would head to their classes. Mind you, the guard that was assigned to each of us was with me. So the guard stayed outside. I don't recall many coming into the the service, but um, my guess is some probably did. And once that bell rang, that guard and myself would head to my first class. And it could be jostling going up the steps. It could be uh, name-calling at me, um, watching out. I was always on guard. I was, I was always aware of what was around me. I did my best to see the open field. It took me a few days, but of understanding how I needed to protect myself, even though I had a, had a, a, a guard. And I would go to my first class, and that guard would stand outside, and I would do whatever work I needed to do within that classroom. Some classes, I had a, a student in front of me or, or behind me that might acknowledge my existence. I knew who I could say something to, like, that was a tough problem of homework. Number three was a tough problem. And that person might say to me, yes, it was. Did you get it worked out? In some classes, I would sit in my assigned seat, and the person who was across from me would take his seat and move it further away from me. I knew that this was always going to be a part of my day. I have always thought that people really never understood why we were at Central. So many adults, especially, thought that it would uh, bring the whole process, the whole living conditions down where, you know, as, as much as I like all people, sitting next to a white person, I surely don't get a buzz. But a lot of people thought that that might be the process, that blacks just wanted to sit next to white people had nothing to do with it. It was about having the same access that they received every day. I would leave from that classroom and have to go to the next one. If it was a distance, uh, it was no telling what might happen between one classroom and the next. Some instances, my books were knocked out of my arms. Uh, I'd have to bend over to pick them up. You get kicked in the rear. Uh, You learn how to keep your back to the wall. Um, you learned all these defensive mechanisms. One of mine that, that the other eight kind of laugh about, in fact, one called me a roadrunner, um, is because I walked fast. That was one of my defensive ways of handling the situation. I had a redhead nemesis who loved to walk on the heels of my, uh, on my heels as I would go from one class to the other. 
I mean, it was like a job for her to do this. So my feeling was, if you're going to walk on the back of my heels, you're going to work for it. So I walked fast, not knowing that later this information was being given to the guards, and I was getting a guard, a different guard every week. Most kids, most of the eight had the same guard for at least two weeks, but I was getting one, a, a different one each week. And it turns out, you know, four or five months later, I'm finding out it's because <laughs> I walked too fast. But that was the way I had to deal with my, my situation, or at least that's the way I found that was appropriate for me. The day would go on very similar to that. The showers in the gym, uh, we all had to take showers after our gym class. Uh, mine might end up having, you know, somebody turn all the cold on or all the hot on. So you had to be very careful about where you laid your clothes. Uh, they could be wet when you got out. So we all learned how to have a, another set of clothes available to us just in case. If ink was spilled on your clothes or spittle on you, or you learned how to do a lot of things. And that was kind of how it went for me all day. I would gather with the other black students at a table at lunch. Not all, we had two different uh, lunch times and uh, three or four of us had the same time that I did and we would have lunch, we might chit chat. Most of us were probably tired from what we had already encountered for the first three or four hours. And it was the same way in the afternoon. We were happy to get in the car and head back to the Bates home and then our parents or whoever the carpooling, situ whatever carpooling situation we had set up would then take us home. So that was the way it was at school. When I got home, I didn't want to discuss it. I didn't want to discuss it at the Bates home. All I wanted to do was to get home, um, have a snack, look at American Bandstand, and get started on my my homework and start all over again the very next day. It just became, at, after a short period of time, I, I realized that this was a job. And I got up every morning and put on my clean clothes to head off to my work. What were the kind of repercussions that your parents suffer for you making this, this sacrifice? Economically, they were affected. My father was a brick mason. My, my grandfather owned the construction fam, uh, uh, construction company who got big jobs throughout the state of Arkansas through some of the white larger contracting companies. And as my father worked on the, the jobs, after three or four days or a week later or two weeks later, someone would say, did you know that, that was, that's one of the nine fathers? And all of a sudden, he didn't have a job. And then he'd have to find another job and another job. So that process went on and off that complete year to the point that when school was out that first year, my father went to Los Angeles with another contractor, and they built a lot of barbecue pits and, and fireplaces and so forth to prepare for the next year. My father found himself working in St. Louis, in Chicago, in other places, and coming home on weekends. You know, that, that went on for about three years. It, it, it really did affect the family 
in many ways. Uh, spiritually, not having your father there, you were so accustomed to him being there. He, he could be there for two weeks and then he's gone for a week or two weeks. So to make sure that there was food on the table. And with that, the neighborhood gathered and protected us as much as possible and other, our extended family. You know, my grandfather, both grandfathers were rather big in my life. I had a lot of great aunts and uncles, and they were big in my life. So because of all of them, they helped to keep that going. Now, my sisters, in my mind, when I look back on it, even though they don't want me to take that responsibility, but I think they suffered because they didn't have the upbringing that I had. Um, they didn't have, they were denied access to social things or playing in the yard without worry or having um, both parents there at all times. Even though my father was not there my first three years of my life because he was in World War II, but um, by and large, he was there in my, in my life all the time and had been with my sisters. But because of what was happening to me, it, in my mind, it was affecting them as well. And your mother? My mother was the one who kept everything together. Um, she, she did not work. Um, her, her actually, when she did start working, uh, which was the year that schools were closed. She did work for the housing authority um, with the help of some people that um, uh, helped her to get the job because of, you know, the financial problems that, that each family was, hand, uh, you know, uh, up against. Some of the other parents, there were two of them, three of them were teachers, two lost their jobs. They had to end up, you know, uh, fighting uh, through the courts to get their jobs back. So that, that was um, big for them. Um, one lost his job, Mr. Thomas just lost his job completely and had to do, and he worked for International Harvester. And he had to find just work where he could find it. So <clears throat> it, it, it was tough for all of us. And, and um, our mothers, uh, my mother grade, I, I think, that that first year, especially with her not working, that she was at home and the radio is on and the TV is on and all of this meanness is being shown. Um, and then you've got people calling the home and saying, you need to go up there and get her. She shouldn't be there. Um, see, with, within our community, um, they, there were also black people who did not think that we should be there because it was affecting them. It was a trickle-down effect. It was, it was affecting black businesses. It, it affected homes. It, the very same way it was affecting me, and their kids weren't even there. So it, if, if some stood up in a positive, in our support, and was working for a segregated uh, segregationists and recognized that, I mean, that person might, have, might lose their job. Uh, if they were willing to speak up. Some worked the system. So I understood that. 
Even at 14, I understood that. So, you know, it, there are always ways of achieving your goal. And it, it just depends on what frame of reference you're in and how you want to go about doing it. It makes it, um, it makes you, your creative juices run, I think, to, <laughs> to, to reach for that gold ring. And that's what I've always tried to do, is to get what everybody else wants to have. I mean, I'm like anybody else. I, I want a nice home and, and two cars in the garage and kids go to college and, and eat filet every now and then. I, I, everybody wants that. I, you know, it has been stated by scientists that um, we are all 99.9% alike. But the, the masses don't understand that. For some reason, whites and some blacks don't understand that. That we're all alike. We just got different pigmentation. That's all. You're questioning about the lost year, yes. which is the year that Governor Farbus closed all of the schools um, through some order, which meant a lot of litigation that took place. And Thurgood Marshall and the... Uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, represented the nine in this case. And this went on for a year. So it disrupted the city completely, black and white. Black kids went to country schools outside of Little Rock, went over to North Little Rock uh, school system because that's a different municipality. Some quit school altogether. Some joined the service. Some went to other places. White kids did the same thing, but they started, the segregationists started a school that had this Confederate flag flying, so you knew that school was for them. But they didn't, I don't think they ever got their North Central accreditation. In the meantime, um, we thought that it was going to happen in the next month or two, and it just meant sitting out. But after a month went by, we realized that we were out of school. And school was not going to start until the federal courts got involved again and this was settled. I took correspondence courses through the University of Arkansas. My uncle from Seattle was calling once a week trying to get my mother and father to let me come there. Chicago relatives were calling. New York relatives were calling. I could have gone anywhere, but I wanted to stay close to my family. I'm sure that that was the underlying thing. And I was being told how important this was. So, you know, the, the weight of the race, in a sense, and the weight of, of what it meant throughout the country and, and, and what it meant to the educational system was on our shoulders. And whether we really wanted that or not, I, I would deflect it. To be honest with you, I never wanted to take that on. But I guess within, deep within, I did take it on because I knew I was doing the right thing. My parents have always given me the opportunity to make my own decisions. And they had told me, you know, I, I learned early on that when you make a commitment, you see it through. Now, I saw that year through. Now, I didn't have to continue. So that year was what took place. And then when the courts ruled that Fabus was, was wrong, the injunction was incorrect or whatever, 
schools reopen in September, actually in August. And at that time, I was finishing up an internship with Camp Menacing in New York. And uh, when I finished that up, I came back to Little Rock and went back to Central. So um, I went to summer school that summer in Chicago. I lived with my, my aunt and uh, my great aunt and, and went to Hearst High School. And I received two more credits because you needed X amount of credits to, to complete North Central accreditation to go into college. And that, that was what I did. So correspondence courses, Chicago, one summer. And then when I graduated from Central in May of 1960, I went to St. Louis and finished up. I needed one more credit, but I ended up taking two before going off to Michigan State University. And each one of us have done some of the same things. I, I can say that we, we are doing what we were expected to do from our families as far as doing well in school, getting a, a, a job, doing well at that job, and giving back to your community. I am now serving as the president of the Little Rock Nine Foundation, and uh, we started out with one scholarship uh, for a student at Little Rock Central High School, and now it has grown to nine scholarships throughout the country, and that makes me feel good. What would you say to these, as I told you earlier, we had about 15 students participating in this drama that mm -hmm. honor the nine. What would you say to them? Our teachers knew, were creative where they took everyday news and, and taught you how you should be proud of what we are giving to this country uh, as, as a citizen. And um, I think our young people today need to feel that as well so that they can move forward and, and be proud of who they are, where they have come from, and just look how far they can go. That concludes this episode of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Our producer-director, Danielle Betts. Support for Destination Freedom is provided by the Bonfie Stanford Foundation, the Ulipians Fund of the Denver Foundation, Arts and Society, and Karen and Johnny Klein. Destination Freedom Black Radio Days is produced by Danielle Betts. The series is remixed by Maurice Smith, a.k.a. Reese. Make sure you check us out at NoCredits.com and pick up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Radio Public, Spotify, etc. Follow us at Twitter at Donnie Betts, hashtag NoCreditsProduction, LLC, hashtag Black Radio Days, hashtag Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.